Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Between subjective experience and the things most people can accept as objective facts, there yawns a cavernous gulf. Imagine you're on a stage in front of 50,000 strangers trying to explain what it felt like to fall in love for the first time. There are many ways of going about it, but it sure ain't easy. The facts most of us agree upon, things like gravity, our own mortality, global warming, they rest on reason, evidence, science. Clunky and fussy though they sometimes are, these are the best tools we know of to test and replicate knowledge species-wide. But what happens when someone claims that something's objectively true, but reason, evidence, and or science are insufficient to test it? Claims of hauntings, cryptozoological wonders, or alien technology under US military lock and key. This is the stuff of endless subreddits and secret societies, of conspiracies and shadow wars between skeptics and believers, where evidence is lacking or disputed, things can get hella heated. My guest today wants to weaponize your curiosity in the realms of these extraordinary beliefs. He's Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, a mixed martial athlete, a visual artist, and an investigative filmmaker. His new documentary is called Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. It raises some ghosts, some hell, and some very unsettling questions. Welcome to Think Again, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. So I, I was thinking that I might be the ideal audience for this documentary. Is documentary how you refer to it? You call it investigative? It is an investigative documentary, meaning I was uncovering evidence that hadn't been available for 30 years. Right. So I feel like in some ways I might be the ideal audience for this because I'm very curious about very open to, very interested in the borders beyond what we know. And I'm also perfectly willing to accept that there are many things that seem uncanny and impossible or unlikely that are nonetheless true. At the same time, I have a fairly overactive rational apparatus <laughs> that wants to look at these things very closely. Your attitude is precisely what I hope and require that an audience has. You know, you're an optimistic uh, skeptic. You know, you're <laughs> saying this is wild stuff, which it is wild stuff. And we can't definitively prove all of it, but we can start to look at it from a different perspective. My uh, mentor in journalism, his name is George Knapp, lead investigative reporter out of Las Vegas, Nevada. He broke the Area 51 story, the Bob Lazar story. For 25 years, he fought alone to essentially keep this story forward as he discovered new information. However, in that 30 years, no filmmaker was ever granted access to Bob Lazar and his life. And that's what you see in this film is an intimate portrait of an individual with an extraordinary claim. And what can we learn from it in the light of December 2017, New York Times broke a story, UFOs are real, our government chases them. Commander David Fravor, who is a friend of mine, f went after one of these UFOs for the United States military. And New York Times broke that story. However, I broke the story before the New York Times twice okay. about Commander Fravor. So we're living in a world now where the concept of UFOs and beings from somewhere else is no longer fringe. If you think it's fringe, that's a data poor perspective. You have not been educated. So hopefully this film will help educate you and bring you to the point of saying, hmm, is this man, Bob Lazar, worthy of our trust? And that's what everybody wants to know. Is he telling the truth? I think we get into a kind of unhelpful binary often when we think about this conversation in terms of, and when people kind of 
dig in their heels on one side of either optimism or skepticism, either saying, you know, anything that anybody says, which is out of the realm of like what I've known before is absolutely ridiculous and impossible. And surely it's merely a matter of proving how it's a hoax on the one hand, or everything that sounds amazing must be true because wow. Beliefs are mercurial things. We can take a belief, we can take it on or off like a nice jacket. You right. know, it, it, sometimes it's like clothing we can't afford. You know, you, you have a belief for a second and then it's gone. But the foundation of true belief, if you can actually start to learn and build evidence for your belief. Some beliefs are stronger and they're more powerful than others. And that's wholly dependent upon a data-rich perspective. That, right. Yeah, that you have enough to base your belief on. So beliefs, again, it's not a matter of belief. It's either true or it's not true. But for you to get to that point, you need to have the evidence. So by data-rich, you mean like a preponderance of evidence, like enough evidence right, that like, is convincing. Like I can't take you in 1989 with a time machine, take you back to a secret base and show you everything Bob is saying is true. However, over time, over the lens of 30 years, we can start accumulating data and information that either supports or goes against what Bob Lazar said. Right. So in this film, I'm presenting you the evidence. And I want to dig into that evidence. And before that, I have to like whoop, rewind to something that you said and get a little Talmudic on that. You were talking about New York Times article and you were like, UFOs are real. I have not read. I remember it vaguely. Uh, the New York Times in December of 2017 put out an article that the world saw that, that announced two things. One, it announced that in 1969, we were told as Americans, as the world, that the government's study on UFOs ended. The United States government is no longer interested in UFOs, mm. all debunked, except for 5%. However, they were lying. And the New York Times proved that. And they showed that there was a program, an active UFO identification program called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. That is what they broke. Okay. They broke that there's this program to study these machines that are flying with impunity in our airspace and messing with military operations. And these are machines that are so far advanced from our modern technology that no nation in the world could have produced them. They're gravity propelled. We don't have the ability to, to use gravity. We propelled. know they're gravity propelled because... Yeah, because of the way that they maneuver, right? Mm -hmm. So the only possible way to have that type of inertia and take a left hand turn going, you know, 18,000 miles an hour has to be a distortion of gravity. Otherwise you get slammed. So New York Times you. broke the story that there's this program. Now read between the lines a little bit. What they're saying is we have footage of it and the Pentagon released two videos, one of which is from Commander Fraber, who's a friend of mine who engaged one of these UFOs. So they've told you these are in our airspace. We know that they've mm. messed with military operations. They're not made by any foreign government. We don't know where they come from, but they're more technologically advanced. So we, we have to catch up to that point and say, okay, UFOs exist, unidentified, they call them AAVs, anomalous aerial vehicles, and now in the media, AATs, anomalous aerial threats, because anything you don't know as a military person mm. is a threat until determined otherwise. So last thing, 
I broke that story before the New York Times about Commander Fravor because I mm. talked to him for two years quietly to accumulate witnesses and resources and really get a handle on that story. So I was able to bring that out through my mentor, George Knapp, on Coast to Coast AM, which is a show. So that's on the record. And the reason I'm not bragging about it, I'm confessing, because what I want you to know is that this is something that people push out like it's new. It's not new. This has been happening a long time time, these right. engagements in the air with things of unknown origin. If you're not in the right framework or you're not coming from a specific media organization where people are assuming your angle is super skeptical to begin with, probably it gets lost in the noise. I mean, I, you broke this story and I'm sure many people were aware of it, but probably when the New York Times broke it, it was like, okay, yeah, now Fox this News is for real. But that's fine. The, you know, the point is just that there's people working to get the story to people like the New York Times. That's all happening before someone like the New York Times breaks. It's sure. so great they broke and sure, don't sure, get sure, me wrong. Sure, sure. But I just want to give people a little bit of history in that this is something that's been happening a long time. And when you talk about gravity, engines, and we'll get into some of what Bob Lazar says in just a second, uh, you know, that he described it as like, if you have a bowling ball on a bed and you press down on the bed, you are essentially making, that's a metaphorical distortion in space time. The bowling ball rolls toward the divot and that's how these things work. They distort space time and then the, the ship, as it were, pours into the, 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 the void that has been so, made. So yeah, if you'll bear with me for one second, because this is the <laughs> most important, it's really interesting, yeah. the most important important thing to me because this is what, and I like to say, weaponized my curiosity. What I mean by that was I became dangerous because curiosity is dangerous. The second you, you know, like you, you get a dog in a fight and you're like, that's, I'm going to find out, right? This is what did it for me. In 1989, I heard Bob Lazar describe a propulsion system. It is a non-reactionary propulsion system. Everything we know is a reactionary propulsion system. Push something out the back. That's how you go forward. What he said flipped my script. It's a gravity amplification system. So what that means is you take a gravity, which now we know is a wave, which when he told the story, it wasn't determined yet. Mm. Now we know it's a wave. You amplify that wave. When you amplify gravity, gravity by its nature, there's an equation. It distorts space and time. Right. So instead of pushing yourself, trying to move faster than the speed of light, you warp the fabric of space-time and literally fall into space. That's why you have the bowling ball on the bed is your metaphor. Push your fist on it, the bowling ball falls to your fist. It is a completely different type of propulsion, in quotes, than we have ever imagined. And so this is what's so exciting. I'm trying to do the grammar in my head of what it would be called besides propulsion, because propulsion is right. is pro yeah. forward. This yeah. is sort of, yeah. you know, anti-pulsion. Yeah. You're doing the whatever. James Brown, man. Yeah. You slip on in. Yeah, I don't it's know. Like it's an anti-gravity or something. It's not anti-gravity. Okay. It, it actually, it utilizes gravity as a way to, like, so when these it, crafts... It's making gravity, is um, that correct? It, it is amplifying a natural source mm. of gravity okay. in a fuel source called Element 115, where you can take a part of the wave and, like, a like a sound wave, you you can amplify it. So that's the that's the concept. It's a really sophisticated and beautiful. It doesn't go against our physics either. That's the thing. It doesn't go against our known right. physics. We just don't have the material science as humans yet to do atomic zero gravity printing to make complete perfect waveform guides. But 
we do understand the science. Like how it ought to work. Yeah, yeah we know yeah, how yeah. it works. Yeah, we can't make it and we don't have an abundance of a super heavy element called element 115, which only occurs probably naturally other than a few atoms of unstabilized version that we made in laboratories, particle accelerators. This is something that must have been harvested from supernovas that were larger and more massive mm. than our supernova. Could be naturally produced in a supernova Some on supernovas that have more um, mass where they can produce a naturally occurring stabilized abundance of element 115 is that's what's theorized on earth here how we had 500 pounds of it at uh, area s4 which is what bob claimed that had to have been harvested and brought here so element 115 as we've been able to make it on this planet i, I read it was called moscovium or something yeah, so is they that right? named it first it was element 115 one day it might exist then it was called unapentium and then when they named it because of the russian connection it was called moscovium and it's unstable meaning it's throwing off electrons it's like radioactive and so basically just to make it real clear to your audience because this seems like <laughs> and then we're gonna we're nerding out on this but then we'll let's yeah. get big picture well, this in just is important a second. this yeah. is big think right so <laughs> here we go yeah so we have been able to generate maybe four atoms of what we call muscovium element 115 now every element has different isotopes and those isotopes can make something unstable or stable meaning the half-life is to us in human lifespan, usable or not usable. So element number one has three different types of isotopes. The first two are stable. The third one is not. So it deteriorates immediately. So the, the atoms that they smash together in this is, oh yes, a few atoms of 115, it can go on the periodic chart. Well, in 220 milliseconds, it was gone. Right. But what Bob Lazar described is a form of element 115 with the right isotopes so that it essentially became stable enough to be usable. But for us to make any quantity of it to experiment on? Impossible. There's no way. So it had to have been harvested from somewhere else and brought here if what he's saying is true. Is true. So let's get to that then. Everyone has heard of Area 51. Bob Lazar is the reason everyone has heard of this. What is his story? What does he say happened back in 1980, late 80s, I guess? Yeah, 1989. So, right. In 1989, and it is true, the reason you know Area 51, why everybody knows about Area 51, the world's best known secret base, is because in 1989, Bob Lazar came forward to protect himself. Whether you believe that or not, I know it to be true. And he came forward on the news with George Knapp, the reporter out of Las Vegas, and he said, I was employed by the United States military to attempt and back engineer or reverse engineer an extraterrestrial, an alien propulsion system. I was hired, I worked on it very briefly, and then I had a problems in my personal life and I was a liability and I got scared. They were gonna do something to me. So I came, he came forward, he told his story, he figures he'd get it all out and they, they can't do anything to him after he did that. And wow, was he wrong. He'd been shot at. The reason for him getting out on the news as an insurance policy was that he felt that his life was in danger, at least in So part. this is such a human story, it's gonna make you laugh, man. But yeah, so he, he basically was doing this incredible work. He couldn't, nobody that works out at the test site, and I've interviewed a, a bunch of them, they can't tell their families what they're doing. They can say, I've got this job, but you get called to work at odd hours and whatnot. And his wife 
figured he was having an affair. So they were monitoring his phone lines because when you sign mm. up for your security and you're going through all of the rigor that you need to in order to get clearance, they're allowed to monitor your telephone lines to make sure people aren't trying to blackmail you. Because you know once you get in a position like that, that's a big problem. They want to, do you have any foreign contacts? Do you Got have it. a sta stable family life? So what happened is he's going to work, he's doing all these things, his wife cheats on him because she figures he's cheating on her. So it became this social problem and they told him, the base told him, you're on hold, your wife is having an affair and you need to take care of this. So he starts getting nervous. I know all this stuff. They're not calling me to work anymore. And what am I gonna do? Then what he did was he took his friends out to a remote test site where they could stand on BLM land. He told them the exact time. I'm sorry, BLM? Bureau of Land Management. So it's, you can stand on that land and you're a free American to stand on that land. Gotcha. Okay, so he knew the exact time and place on three separate occasions that a flying saucer was gonna lift up over a remote base south of Area 51. And you're in the mountains, you're looking up and there's a flying disc, boom, moves around. They even filmed it one time. Mm. So he showed his friends, look, I'm telling you the truth, this happened, I'm worried for my life. That's when it started. That's when they started coming after him. They started psychologically terrorizing him, auditing his friends, shot out a back tire on his car, just terrorizing him. You say another word was kind of their attitude. So he's like, F this. And he got pulled in to do this news interview, which he did in silhouette under the name of his boss, which <laughs> Dennis, which is hilarious because it's like a punch to the ribs. Right. Woo, and that blew it up, man. So so that is true. That is what happened. He he never wanted to be a public entity for this. He was he was skeptical about UFOs from the beginning. But after he was threatened, you don't push someone in a corner and not get pushed back, especially when you're a guy like Bob Lazar. So he came forward to protect himself. And George Knapp and him had a wrestle on the floor for that tape. He didn't want to put that tape in and reveal his identity, <laughs> mm. but George is a bigger guy and, and he won. And he won. Those guys that saw the the UFOs on the open government land, the did test you flights. talk to them? Yeah, I talked to many of them, most of them, and they're not even friends anymore, some of them. The one thing they agree on is that night, they saw something like they'd never seen before in their life, right when Bob said they would. So all of them, all of them backed that up. All of them. Having seen this... Did you like the movie? Yeah, it was really interesting because the subject is fascinating. I think you asked great questions. You clearly dug deep into this. So it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel like, wow, UFOs. It, it was a very thoughtful investigation. And he comes across, as is the part of the point here, as extremely credible. It's very, you know, you listen to the man. It's hard to, you know, you kind of run through all the possibilities, right? Is this a delusional, schizophrenic person. Doesn't feel like that. This is not a clinical analysis, but it doesn't feel like that. The people around him have a sense of his credibility as well. He's got a certain gravitas. He's got, as you say, this just, I don't even really want to be talking about this. I, I, I wouldn't have wanted this in the first place. So you do have to ask the question, like, if this were all made up, why? What would be the advantage? And as you spend a lot of time, it looks like there's a lot more disadvantage. When this first started, you have to be skeptical. George Knapp put his career on the line to find out if this was true. He put Bob Lazar through four polygraph tests with a very well-known polygrapher who works now in the gaming industry and was a Los Angeles police officer for a long time. One of the top guys. All right. He aced them. Not a 
point of deception. So, so now we know Bob believes what he's saying because that's now, what a polygraph test proves. I have read a fair amount of data how polygraphs have been debunked as a legit source. People have analyzed his body movements, his micro expressions. They did polygraph tests, but here's another one. So during that time period, George knew George Knapp, he knew a lot of people that worked at Area 51 where Bob said he flew into. He put Bob through the ringer because he, he, you know, he thought he would debunk this guy in two seconds too. Right. right. Everybody he talked with across the board who worked there actively, he's been there. He knows what he's talking about. He was in the phone book at Los Alamos. This is Los Alamos where they deny that he worked, and you you have the phone book. Yes. So, more than that. More than that. Okay. So that's a All whole right. other thing. <laughs> so so we so the whole thing. The biggest point of contention about Bob Lazar is his education. That's what every debunker and critic has focused on for thirty years. To this day, we cannot prove that he went to the schools that, that he said he went to. Caltech, MIT. Yeah. Right. How, yeah. But however, I've spoken personally, and so has George Knapp with two people. That used to drop him off at classes at Caltech. So, you know, look, if he was making a show of it way before he was Bob the UFO guy, he was doing a good job. Now, we can't prove the education. However, think about this. When George Knapp said, well, if he was a scientist, a physicist, that's how he could get picked up to be taken out there. And if he worked at Los Alamos as a physicist at the Maison Particle Accelerator, makes even more sense. Let's try to prove that. Calls uh, Los Alamos, Los Alamos says, we got no record of him. We don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Guess what? George Knapp found in the phone book, his name. He then was able to go there with Bob Lazar and Bob Lazar got him right in, showed him all around. He knew everybody. Then we started talking to other employees at Los Alamos. Yeah, Bob was a physicist here with me. And then the icing on the cake was when a couple years ago, I found a guy named Dr. Robert Krangel. He is an MIT grad himself. Okay. And he worked at Los Alamos during that time period that Bob Lazar said he did. And he's not a UFO guy. And I found him through these spider bots on social media that picked <laughs> up, I know Bob, whatever. And I interviewed him. Bob Lazar? Bob Lazar, the physicist? He goes, yeah. He was there. He was in security briefings with me. And I prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, and so did George Knapp in 1989, Bob Lazar was a physicist at Los Alamos. So now we get to the point. Oh, by the way, he was also in the Los Alamos Monitor, a local paper naming him as a physicist. The question in my mind is like, okay, MIT Caltech, was there nobody that was his classmate? I mean, I get the dropping off at the campus, but like... We have not been able to prove definitively that Bob Lazar went to the those schools. schools. Okay. However, to me, it's almost a, a non-issue after 30 years. I don't care if he was homeschooled. How did he get a job as a physicist at Los Alamos? Sure. You think they just pulled him out of high school? So whatever his education is, I want to move a little bit past that because we can't prove it. We tried to prove it. I'm going to float my last skeptical theory no, and then I want to move on. Keep the skepticism going. Please. Here's the last thing. So, you know, this is a guy who's like, he's very talented and early on, like a kind of engineering and physics hobbyist who like builds bikes jet and cars jet, jet cars and, and yeah. bikes, right? And then we hear like, oh, went to MIT, went to Caltech, and there's no proof of those things. So could this be a situation where you have a very smart guy, very talented guy, right? Who has a kind of inferiority complex thing going on where like he wanted to do this or that with his life, didn't happen. So the advantage of this, I don't want to, I'm whistleblowing, but I don't, I'm not comfortable with this, whatever. It does create a big story, right? It does make a splash. It does create significance. Now, to what the, benefit? Now, well, to the benefit of if you feel like you should have been Einstein okay. and you didn't get into Caltech or MIT, you now have importance in the historical record, even if there's controversy. I'm following. And now, okay. 
Then the thing about getting into Los Alamos, now we've heard about people who have like lied their way into Harvard. You know, these things have happened. You know, like there are loopholes where people don't check transcripts or whatever. He's smart. He knows the physics, maybe. I mean, certainly in 2018, it doesn't make sense to me that any government agency wouldn't do a thorough background check. And he had probably a, he had, too, he had a like, cute clearance and he worked on some yeah, really intense yeah, projects. Sensitive. Trust me, I have done <laughs> yeah. I have done background for a number of people working in agencies who are, I'm friends with. They've come to my house. They've interviewed you about what they eat for breakfast. It's amazing. So however <laughs> the mental gymnastics, whatever we want to do, I am not going to be able in this interview to prove <laughs> to you definitively after 30 years that he has the education he says he has. However, I have proven and it has been proven that he was a physicist at Los Alamos. But beyond that, the things we can't get around, he knew things about the bases where he worked, things that have become now publicly available to know right. that were not available before. So no matter what you think about his <laughs> past, however you think he got entrance, we cannot avoid what we know now. So his claims, right. for 30 years, we have heard that there was a man named Mike Thigpen, and Mike Thigpen supposedly did the clearance for Bob Lazar for the base. However, no one could ever get this guy on the line. They couldn't find him. Even George Knapp tried, blacklisted, not allowed to talk. After 30 years, I found Mike Thigpen. He lives on the East Coast. And I called him and I said, can I talk to you about this story? And he says, yes, I did do clearances for this base. Yes, I do remember Bob Lazar. No, I can't tell you anymore. And then I asked him the funniest question. I said, uh, do you think you can get permission to talk to me about S4, Site 4? Which again, Bob Lazar was the first person ever to say S4 in any public realm. And it is, in 1989, it was confirmed classified projects there. Another thing he knew, how did he know? And Mike said the funniest thing to me. He goes, like, I won't go on camera, but you can you know, quote me and all that. And he goes, I'm going to ask if I can talk to you about Site 4. He didn't say, never heard of it, didn't say, doesn't exist. He says, I'm going to try to get authorization to talk to you about it. He goes, they're probably going to say no, but I'm going to ask. So I found a guy after 30 years that confirmed he did security clearances through EG&G for the base, and he remembers Bob. So these things just start, it's like a death by a thousand <laughs> cuts. cuts. I mean, right, right, right. you know, look, I wanted to know the truth too. I wanted to know the truth about UFOs and the truth about Bob Lazar. And that was my journey. And that's what you see in the film. So if what he says is true, right? Bob. Then the, yeah, Bob. Yeah, if what Bob says about is about aliens and alien spacecraft and alien propulsion systems. Yes. So then if what he says if what Bob says is true, then the US government had nine UFOs, saucer-shaped UFOs, what we think of as flying saucers, which were running on these kinds of element 115. element 115 engines. Some of them were operational and were able to fly, which is presumably what we saw in what he and his friends saw when low they went Low power out. mode. Yeah, the low yeah. power mode they were flying. There's right. two modes that are important. So they figured out you know, how to operate them to as a well to a certain extent. Here's what I can buy, right? I mean, I have no problem buying the idea that the U.S. government or that any government is capable of covering up something that they consider to be extremely sensitive and, er fact. and even and discrediting somebody, erasing their record. All of those things make perfect sense to me. So, so when I go to the place which your work encourages us to do of saying, well, okay, let's ask all the questions about why this might not be true. And then let's ask what if it is true, what what happens then? 
part of my mind wants to find it hard to believe that nobody in the U.S. government managed to make use of this stuff for military purposes between then and now. Let's say we buy the story for a minute. Let's just yeah, say yeah. we okay. We have an alien craft. Yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah. now let's get there. We've been through the hard part. Let's talk. <laughs> let's talk about the interesting stuff. Let's pretend the United States military has had these craft. Now, Bob recently speculated, which he never speculates. He says, this is what I saw. This is what I know. This is what I read in briefings, like alien bodies and stuff. He goes, I don't know if this is true, but I saw the propulsion system. I know that is true. So what have we learned? How, your, your thing is, why aren't we using these technologies? Yeah. Why don't we see it? Okay, so here's the deal. And this is really fascinating, man. Imagine like you drop off a motorbike, like a little motorcycle, you know, back in Victorian era, right? And it's full of gas. Oh, they've got a key in it. They'll figure it out. They'll fire it up. They'll have a few good days of riding that bike. The moment that fuel is gone, they're done. They right. don't know what to do. So Bob recently speculated. He goes, I really believe we haven't made progress on this for decades before I got there. He says, I have a feeling it was kind of conveyed to me that these craft were from like an archaeological dig. Like it's something mm. that had been here so long ago. So I think we're kind of like kids with a cool motorcycle in Victorian area where we ran out of fuel. We don't really know how to make these things mm. operate because we don't have the material science to replicate them with earthly materials. So that's my best guess gotcha. at this time. You know, and you say something to the effect of people's arrogance in thinking that, that we're the smartest beings in the universe universe. And I feel like for most of us, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that we think it couldn't exist. It's that we're just running probabilities on, is it on earth? You know, I, I think everyone I know accepts that there must be life in the universe and that there probably is life that's more intelligent than us. When I first started talking about this, it was a different era. People were not cool with the idea <laughs> that, that there were other beings smart in the universe. It's so funny that the tide has changed. So we all kind of agree it's a homogenous universe where life can, you know, spur up at any moment. And if they survive natural disaster or themselves, they could become technical technologically advanced. But the big question is not if extraterrestrial life exists. The big question is, are they visiting here? Right. That's hard for people to imagine because we're operating off of a reactionary propulsion system to get vast distances. You need to basically go almost as fast as speed of light. It seems impossible. This craft and these technologies operate in a completely different manner. Undoubtedly, we have been visited by an intelligence that has been engaging humanity since the beginning of recorded human history. This is known by our Defense Intelligence Agency. There are programs in every single branch of our government. More will be released. Okay. However, my mentor in journalism, George Knapp, released DIA documents proving a program called AWSAP. DIA, sorry. Uh, Defense Intelligence okay, Agency. Right, okay, yeah. It is the intelligence agency of the Pentagon. Okay. So basically what I'm telling you now, and mark my words, because it will be out, there are more programs to study UFOs than what you have heard about. Mm -hmm. A few big ones that will be talked about. So here's the deal. It's not a matter of belief. And as we started talking about, you know, beliefs are mercurial things. You can get rid of them like a jacket. Okay, but the whole idea here is that with the more data and information that you're given, the more palatable the truth is about this subject. It would just be real nice if we could like see the damn engine. If we Why could... don't they tell us? <laughs> just tell us the basics, babe. We're not alone. Other people from other places have been visiting here. 
That's all you got to say. But I think here's the reason. You want to know the reason why that this is not told to everybody. The reason why this is the most compartmentalized and secret program on earth. Mm. And it's very simple and you're going to get it in two seconds. Everybody will, because this technology of propulsion, of gravity amplification is so powerful. The moment anybody masters this, it is game over. They win. If it's China, if it's Russia, if it's America, mm. you win. It is the most powerful weapon ever developed. So from a standpoint of national defense, they must keep this secret until they figure it out. That is completely plausible. And I think I would speak for just about anybody I know uh, in saying that if and when we can see this on some kind of vast scale. And I mean, I, I know that your idea of what is undeniable may be different from mine because you've been immersed in this, but if and when we can all see it, you know, photograph, boom, here it is. I think that's profoundly exciting. And as was said in the film, that would be one of the most, if not the most important event in in our history. Yeah, we're not alone. Aside man. from crawling out of the ocean or that's whatever. That's right. However that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the idea that we're not alone in the universe yeah. has always been this powerful and profound thing that we want to know because it doesn't make me feel small. It makes me feel big that I'm part of something, a fabric of something that extends far beyond my personal problems. So on one level, I would like that to be true and I'd like to embrace that. And I don't have the luxury of disbelief. I know it to be true in my reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an exciting time. There's never been a time like this before when our United States government releases two videos, now three, of UFOs. And they say, we don't know who they are, how they operate. There's no tail number. There's no rotors. There's no propulsion. When you hear Commander David Fravor talk about watching this thing and through his different optics that he had mm. on his weapon system to not see any plumes of heat, this thing just propelled in a different way than ever before. It's so exciting. And I, I'm hopeful for humanity. I don't think we're going to blow ourselves up. I think that we have something really special here on earth. And I think people generally are good if you give them the chance. I guess I do come down on people are generally good as well. But I think we, I think we get a little confused when we start organizing on a mass scale. And so a lot of, a lot of where we become not good is in the realm of clubs and tribes. And when we can break down those walls and find connection, yes. I think. And they're false walls. I mean, remember what Ronald Reagan said at the United Nation. He said, imagine if we were under an alien threat. He said this many times, but he said, imagine if we were under an alien threat. And he said this during the Cold War era, you know, how quickly we would bond together to defend ourselves. So these barriers of everything we put in right. race and culture and wealth and all this stuff, all of that disintegrates when we find out that we are part of a much larger cosmic awareness. I long for and support any versions of that that don't rely on our finding a common enemy, like aliens right. attacking yeah, us. That, that is what he said, but <laughs> yeah. that wasn't the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, not, yeah. Not, not deliberately Sometimes it takes war to uh, <laughs> unite us, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the basic idea, and look, I'm not like just this love and peace guy. I mean, I believe you should throw your hands up if you need to, uh. right, to defend the ones you love and all this. I'm just saying that we all focus on these small things because that's 
our mind, the, the way the mind works, we reduce things. We're reductionary. As human beings, we just, sure. to make sense of it, if you took in all the information around you at one time, it, you would be overwhelmed. So it is human nature to be reductionary. That's right. But I think on the bigger scale, I'm just saying that knowing that we are part of a much larger community would be profound to the human consciousness and the development of humanity. Totally agree. Totally agree. This is the part of the show for the audience where the video team of Big Think has unearthed a couple of archived short past video interview clips on big ideas that are going to send Jeremy and me off in unpredictable directions. You ready? Yeah. Okay. All right. So this one is, da, 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 da. oh, fun. Okay, great. This is an audience member of Big Think sending in a question for Michelle Thaler, who is an astronomer with NASA and who comes in and sometimes talks to us. The video is titled, How Does Religion Affect How We View the Cosmos? Uh, sent in by Chris. The first thing I think about is simply the history of being human. There were so many things about the universe that we didn't understand. You know, thousands of years ago, we watched the seasons changed, or we observed things like thunderstorms. And we had no idea, we didn't have the scientific knowledge to explain these things. And so it seems like a very natural, understandable human instinct to try to ascribe these things to, to gods, to beings that are so much more powerful than us, we can barely comprehend them. And that sort of way of interpreting nature as, as spirits and things that are much more powerful than us, I find very beautiful. Then of course what happens is you learn. You learn what causes lightning. You know, the, the ancient Scandinavians might have said it was the god Thor actually causing lightning. Well, we know it's not Thor. It actually has to do with friction inside clouds and generating electric charges. We understand now why the sun shines and why the seasons change. And there seems to be this instinct to always put God farther and farther away. So now that we understand thunderstorms, maybe God lives in the sky. We just put the idea of God farther away from what we know. People say, okay, well now we understand how planets work and how galaxies work, but maybe God set off the Big Bang. Why are we always pushing God away? Why are we always making the concept of whatever God is farther and farther and farther? And as soon as we have scientific knowledge about something, we say, okay, well, you know, that's not God. God must be farther out still. There's never been a time in human history where we realized that some things had scientific explanations and some things didn't. It's like, okay, well, we know why the sun shines, we know why the seasons change, but lightning, that really is Thor. Th that actually never happens. Everything that we explore, we actually add to our body of knowledge. And while I am not personally religious, I, it seems to me to be a disservice to the idea of God, that God constantly gets farther and farther away. You put that him or however you want to call it, just outside the grasp of human knowledge. Someday we will understand what set off the Big Bang, and I don't think the answer is going to be God. Maybe God is something more personal to you. Maybe it's how you relate to other people. Maybe it's how you define your morality. Maybe it's something that's very, very important in our culture. But I also think that we do the universe a disservice because we're putting our own ego, our own vision of ourselves out there. There are many religions that seem to think of God as something like a person, some very, very powerful version of a human being. And there are other religions that don't, that talk about natural forces or, or gods that are incomprehensible. But all of them seem to be too much about putting our own selves, our own fears, our own version of what morality should be out onto the universe. And the universe really doesn't care about any of that. 
it feels good, but I also think it's true. We all want to feel connected to something. I don't have a religion. I feel like I'm a spiritual person, meaning that I, I believe that we have some sort of soul in us or something. There's something in us that animates us right. and directs us. And I've gotten glimpses of that in my life. There are certain people that you connect with and you're I'm in love with you. You know, these things can happen and coincidences and every single human being has a story and all of them, there's something mystical that occurs to them or what we perceive as mystical. So I want to believe right. the things that she's saying as an example, that as we push God away because mm. uh, you know, of science, that maybe we shouldn't do that. And again, I don't know who God is or what that is. Hey, give me a, give me a ring, God. I, mean, <laughs> I never talked to God, but I just think it's human nature to want to feel protected. And I think that that's what it gives us to know we're part of something bigger. However, science and the way that we understand our existence to me is one of the greatest comforts. It shows us why we're here because we have evolved from the elements around us. And this goes back to something, you know, I was trying to say in the intro to the show about, about this gap between the subjective and the objective, because we all walk around with subjective experiences, like what it feels to be in love or these resonances that we just can't explain these moments where we go, oh, you know, something huge is going on. And then a scientific mindset, when it tries to come into that space, it's pheromones, it's the, yeah, yeah, yeah right. It's pheromo- or, or it tries Science. to explain it away in ways that that's not always the right apparatus to explain. Does it it make it less magical that there are these amazing pheromones that are released when two people engage each other on a certain level? I mean, it's like, it's still magical that this, our biology allows for all of this. And it may also have components that in terms of like the causality, in terms of what's going on there when you, as you say, meet somebody for the first time and really connect with them in some deep way. Science wants to say everything is explicable through science. I think that at some point, what we call science may grow to the point that it encompasses lots of things it can't currently explain. But I don't think that science as we currently have it, and I don't, I don't even think most scientists would say that science as we currently have it can explain everything. So let's use a concrete example. I have in my life before had moments, which maybe you have as well, where you get some sort of knowledge that there is no logical way in which you could have received that knowledge. So for example, I woke up out of a dead sleep and I knew that my friend was ODing on heroin. Mm. I had no idea that he was even using heroin at the time. I just woke up and I knew, I felt it and I was right and I went there. And so here's the deal. How did I know? Science one day will be able to explain what I experienced. We don't know yet how that occurred. How do you get information? How do you, but I think a lot of people have these experiences. Yes, they do. They Everybody do. Knowing does. someone that's close to them has just died so, or whatever. Anything yeah. like that. Yeah, so, yeah. so one day I hope science will be able to explain that. Now, is that going to make it less mystical for me that science has explained exactly how information is data is transferred, you know, faster than the speed of light? No, it won't. It just makes it cooler. Yeah. The fact that I know how. So that's a here's, here's a possible explanation, right? Like whatever it was in your connection with this person, right? Philosophers talk about free will and how from a certain perspective, many of the things that happen to us are determined. We're set on a course for all the the free will we like to think we have, that we are also kind of wind-up mechanisms. It's the wind-up clock and, theory right. of the universe. And yeah. so, so if you and this friend have this deep connection, you know this person, like in your very marrow, you know, 
then some part of your brain follows them along this trajectory, which ends in this moment. I mean, that's that's maybe a, you just explain it using science. Conceivable. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm totally don't speculating, know. <laughs> but but I mean, that's a scientific explanation that I could imagine, which would not sort of reduce it to something. It's still that's magical. Not incredible. It's mystical. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. 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 When I was a child, my mother taught us, taught my sister and me to use a Ouija board, which had, the way we did it was Scrabble letters in a circle and a glass upside down on the table. And you would put your fingers on it and the glass would move. And you'd say, if there are any spirits in the room, please enter the glass. And like the glass would start moving. I must have been nine or eight. My sister would have been six. And we, at one point, you know, sometimes it's gobbledygook. It, it just doesn't say anything or it says vague things or whatever. But like one time it was like telling us, you know, I am from Vilnius and like my name was blah, blah. And I died in World War One. You know, historical things and geographical things that I had. Okay, it's conceivable. I once saw the word Vilnius somewhere. It's very unlikely, you know, and it was crazy. And I swear to God, I didn't move that glass. I swear to God, she didn't move of that glass, you know. Have you ever seen the movie or television show, uh, The Boy That Was Born Before? Mm -mm. Okay, there's a huge university study and archive set up for reincarnation where they find kids that have stories and oftentimes things like birthmarks on them that they relate to having a past life. It usually ends around six years old when the kids stop remembering it very well documented at a major university. Look it up because mm, I don't remember the details. Mm, mm. But this little movie, The Boy That Was Born Before, there is no way for us to explain this through modern day science. But this child knew things that he could not possibly have known through any traditional means. And this is replicated over and over and over again by these kids who seem to have memories of past lives. It will give you goosebumps. And what I'm interested in is this impulse, because I know that there are people in the audience. I know that if my father were listening for right now, I, you know, right now, and I probably if I were listening and not on this show, there's a part of the brain that wants to go. when you hear this sort of thing, you, you know, it, tenses, allergic it, it tenses it's, up yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's just like, it's again, maybe that simplification thing that you said that the human brain does. If I go down that road, then I have to entertain every possibility. There's a million freaking trillion people saying stuff like this mm -hmm. and therefore if i i mustn't open that rabbit hole you well, know like, most people are talking uh, about can i say the s word on yes it? of course oh thank fucking Please. god okay so <laughs> most people are full of shit and you get people that prey upon your desire to understand these things you must be skeptical you must be completely and absolutely skeptical but an optimistic skeptic like you said at the beginning that's kind of where we're coming from yeah. optimistic that's so important because because look, a lot of it is BS and people will prey upon you for it. But here's the deal. Don't shut off to it because you and I are not saying we know the answer to this. We're saying there are real mysteries that we don't understand and we'd like to understand them better. That's all I'm saying on your show. That's all you're saying, I think, it sounds That's like. That's what I'm saying. So look, crucify us for being curious about the universe. You know, what's wrong with that? It is indefensible to say that anything that seems impossible must be untrue. You that, know, or, that is or indefensible. That's indefensible. I, I agree with you. Yeah, well, we can high five over it and the audience can disagree. But I think your audience is probably listening to this and thinking, okay, there's things I want to look into. I mean, back to the idea of the flying saucer thing. Look, there are mountains of evidence that can be looked at and understood by any individual 
current day. Don't judge something without having the data and evidence and looking at it and using your rational skeptical mind. If you judge it before you go through that process of looking at everything, again, this is a data poor perspective. I can't stand there and have a conversation where you have to start from square one if everybody else can give you square one. So to the audience out there, <laughs> look into this topic because it's big, it's important. And you decide yourself reality because if you don't, someone else is going to decide it for you. Shall we look at one more, one more surprise video? See what we see it. what we got next. Okay, cool. The expert here, the person speaking, is Heather Haying. So she's an evolutionary biologist and former professor at Evergreen State College. And this is called Neurodiversity: Many Mental Deficits Are Really Hidden Strengths. This should be interesting. Neurodiversity is a pretty new term, and I'm very grateful for it. It, it gets to something that is absolutely real and has been harder to discuss before it existed. That said, I'm not sure I have a perfect definition. It recognizes the fact that we are not singular, that we are not all identical, that we have a variation of, of brains, of connectivity, of aptitudes, of weaknesses, of blind spots, and of sensitivities, and of capabilities. People on the autism spectrum uh, who, are, who are very functional, uh, in my experience, tend to have extraordinary analytical skills and also often actually insight into social interactions so long as they are not the ones participating. Uh, and so you, you have, an, I, I've had a number of autistic students actually um, point out to me dynamics that were emerging in classrooms that I hadn't yet seen and that once they were pointed out, I could see. Uh, and these are the same students who have a very hard time you know, recognizing when it is or is not time to speak or get up or walk through the middle of a classroom and such. There are a number of ways to be neurodiverse. We have names for some conditions that actually represent uh, ends of continuum. Dyslexia is, is a big one. Um, these are going to sound like they're coming out of left field, but colorblindness, left-handedness, in each of those cases, being what in evolutionary biology we call the non-dominant phenotype. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lefty. That's, that's the one of those that I belong to as a group. And about 10% of people across all cultures that have been studied are left-handed. It's a persistent, stable, rare phenotype, which suggests that it's adaptive, that it's persistent, it's complex, um, and it, is, it provides the different wiring of the brain associated with being a left-hander uh, provides benefit in the social group in which left-handers show up. We can put together analyses for why being a left-hander might allow you to approach a physical problem differently that a right-hander would have a harder time solving, but the different wiring of the brain allows for different approaches as well. Similar with colorblindness, that it might be really easy to say, well, okay, that just is gonna give you some some ability to see past color and to see patterns that aren't color-based, perhaps. But I, I suspect that there's wiring in the brain uh, that is associated with colorblindness that also allows for enhanced abilities that are different from those who are color-sighted. Mm -hmm. Dyslexia, for sure. Right? Dyslexia is obviously a very modern condition because writing is a very modern condition. So as an evolutionary biologist, when I say modern, I mean thousands of years. Um, so dyslexia is modern in terms of thousands of years. 
And um, you know, language was always about sound and never about writing until recently. And so the the lessened ability, it's almost never an inability, but the lessened ability to process written symbols into meaning in your head looks to me like it's in trade-off relationship with the ability to engage in real time in speech. And that's not to say that all of us can't learn through practice to be better at any number of these skills, but that being born with what the world has, is calling a deficit is almost always going to exist in trade-off relationship with some often hidden uh, strength. Beautiful. I can relate to that. How so? I've always felt that my weaknesses, which they told me I had a lot of, you know, growing up, became my greatest strengths. So, for example, I'm highly dyslexic. So, for me, reading was an extreme challenge. However, my ability to communicate verbally became amplified because I needed to rely upon that weakness to build a strength. Over time, I learned this through martial arts. I was mm -hmm. never the biggest person. I was never the best fighter, but I was the most dedicated. So when someone would do five times practice a move, I would do 500 times. So these weaknesses of being the smaller person or not being able to you know, read or write as well, eventually were, were built into strengths, which now are some of my best abilities as a communicator. Interesting. So I think that this is true for human beings is we adapt and a deficiency creates on the other end of the spectrum a power. You know, the star-bellied sneeches. Do you remember that story of Dr. Seuss? Sure, of yeah, course. Yeah, so one sneech Some gets a star. Some have stars on Dars. <laughs> well, one guy started a star on his belly and everybody wanted to be like him. Then he got a removal machine. Then everybody started going in this figure eight of getting stars on and removing them. You know, we, this is, the differences are what make us powerful. A problem that you can solve, there's no way I can solve that problem. However, together, there might be a problem that I can solve that you can't. So working together in a symbiosis through our neurodiversity or whatever she said is so powerful. And I think that that comes down to self-acceptance. If you're a good person, you're trying to better yourself and the better the world, and most importantly, the people around you, right? And you are actually a giver and not a taker. Oh my gosh, the world's a different place, man. So yeah, I just yeah, feel yeah. like, I feel like yeah. we should honor that in each other. Some, someone's a dick, get out of my way. <laughs> but, but if they're really trying to do good stuff, you're going to solve something I can't. I'll solve, solve something you can't. And that is powerful. That's why teamwork can be very powerful. I first encountered this idea in the work of Oliver Sacks. He was a neuroscientist, brilliant writer. Uh, the movie Awakenings was based on some of his stories of patients. And he was all about, in his writing, trying to see the world through the eyes of, for example, a man who, from day to day, loses all of his memory. Right, like the seven-second memory thing or seven-minute memory, yeah. And like how that guy every day gets to see the ocean for the first time when his nurse walks him down there. Now, you wrangle with some problems here because there are elements of neuro... It's a combination of things, right? Some elements of neurodiversity, you, like you can be so... You can be completely unable to engage in most of the world as it is. And sometimes that's the world's fault, like the world ought to just accept you better. But sometimes, in some cases, you know, like if you can't move at all, it's a complicated conversation about when is something a problem to be solved and when is it 
just who you are. You so know? I have a kind of a, a manic thing, you know, so sometimes I, not, not man, manic depressive, but they, one time I was diagnosed with a, a t- kind of mania where I'll get real excited, real excited. I just remember I went to see this doctor. He was 80 something years old. He's finishing his practice. I went to go see him and he, you know, they want to put you on a regulator or something like that. And he started crying. I don't know what the hell is going on with this doctor. And he's told me this ancient Greek story that I don't remember that basically saying, why try to solve this problem when you're happy with who you are? All I need to do is dial down sometimes when I get really manic and like, ah, I want to talk, 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 you know, right. dial it down. And so solving that problem is not the right medicine. The right medicine is learning to harness that as a power. And sometimes that means finding yourself a different profession. It can mean finding a different relationship. It can can be about a very redo- tolerant woman redo- finding <laughs> a very tolerant wife, which I have found. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, for real, it, it can be about a square peg in a round hole and trying to redirect those energies. My nature being what it is, there are a lot of professions that I would be very unhappy in, right? And there are many people that are just a mismatch for their lives. Right. right? It's not their bad people. It's not their negative people. They just have not had the courage yet to make the hard decision to follow something in the short, brief moment we're here on earth in this life that really satisfies them so that they can be better in the world to other people. I know this is almost philosophy in here, but whoever's listening to your audience, what you think your greatest weakness is, your greatest pain, that can become your greatest strength. You just need to transmute it and you need to direct it. And if you can do that, every single person has infinite amount of power and influence to to do good in this world. You just need to have the balls to do it. I actually want to, how do I want to say, I want to wrap a blanket of comfort around this a little bit too, though, and say, I see where it's about courage and what you're calling balls sometimes. I also, For men or women. <laughs> I also think that sometimes people find themselves in cul-de-sacs. Sometimes it takes, it can take something external to shake you, shake you out, shake you awake. That's sometimes, why we're here. That's why there's other people here. Yeah, people and so, will, so, so the people who are in a tough spot yeah. don't feel like it's their fault is no, what I'm not, trying to say. It's, like, it, yeah, and I agree with you, and I'm yeah. sorry, I misspoke. It, it's not anybody's fault. Life can knock you down down. But the thing is, is that the first impression anybody has of you is the impression you have of yourself. If you can pick yourself up and say, I'm going to do my best, whatever your best is today, if you can do that, but continuously do that, there is nothing that can stop you. And I have lived that. I know that there have been odds against me like anybody in your life. You've been knocked down. Everybody's been knocked down. But it's how you get back up. And yet, sometimes you do need to grab the hand of a stranger to to help pick you up. But there are people out there that will do that. They've done it for me. They'll do it for you. You know, so I agree with you. Let's let's wrap that blanket around. (laughs) If you're in a hard spot, you know, if you're a heroin addict and you want out or something like this, it can be done. Ask for help. If you ask for help, you will get help. This is the this is the last episode of 2018 of this show and I think that that I can't think of a better note on which to wrap what was a very fraught year for a lot of people. Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, thank you so much for being on Think Again. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true pleasure and I'm glad to have met you. Amazingly, we have come to the very last episode of 2018. It's our 176th since the show launched in June of 2015, three and a half years ago. 
To everyone who's been on this journey with me for a while, you know it's been a wild one. Week to week, moment to moment, we try to let the unexpected happen, even when it gets uncomfortable or awkward, because that's how we push beyond what we think we already know. That's what makes people feel alive and awake. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. I'll see you back here on January 12th, 2019. In the meantime, you can reach me at jason at bigthink.com or you can join our conversation on the Facebook group Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast.